Hi, I'm Sean L. McCarthy, founding editor of the Comics Comic, found wherever you can type the Comics Comic into your electronic devices. Welcome to Last Things First, the show that asks comedians about the historic lasts and firsts in their lives as their comedy careers have blossomed, from young people's dreams to adult people living those dreams, or still dreaming. Questions both big and small are asked and answered. It's hopefully both amusing and illuminating. Mark Feuerstein co-created, produces, and stars in the new CBS sitcom 9JKL, which is loosely based on his real-life experience moving back to New York City to live next to his parents and brother while starring for eight seasons on the USA drama Royal Pains. Feuerstein began acting as a student and classmate of mine at Princeton University, and after winning a Fulbright scholarship, found early success in Hollywood, scoring network TV roles in Caroline in the City, Fired Up, Conrad Bloom, and Good Morning Miami. He's also co-starred on the big screen with Nicole Kidman and Sandra Bullock in Practical Magic, with Albert Brooks in The Muse, with Mel Gibson in What Women Want, and with Penelope Cruz in Woman on Top. He also appeared in 2017 on the new installments of both Prison Break and Wet Hot American Summer. There's a lot of catching up to do, so let's get to it! So, Mark, for your scene, uh, last things first, when was the last time you busted a move? Ah, busted move. You're reminding me of uh, that band that we all went to see. Well, Bust a Move was our theme song oh, as, right. as the as, lightweight, as football lightweight football players <laughs> championships. I'm, I'm thinking Young of uh, a band that we that Kevin Friedman and I used to go oh. to <laughs> Friedman uh, to dance, but I forgot what, what it was called. But um, Bust a Move, Mark Tranchina, <laughs> uh, so many great guys on that team. When was the last time? Okay, here. When, when was the last time you had to explain lightweight football to somebody? Uh, I I think I probably drop in that I to my son even recently mm-hmm. like maybe a month ago he asked me if I played football in college and I said yes I did and he was like you played football in college like the one like the games that are on TV and I'm like well not exactly <laughs> maybe in a small section of Pittsfield Pennsylvania when we played in the Anthracite oh, Bowl Oh yes the Anthracite Bowl uh uh, what a wonderful bowl name that is, Anthracite, for hey. a coal town. Yeah, coal's coming back. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Um, but uh, not that often. No. And I have to say it was one of the big – this is an amazing thing about life because I'm now trying to find a school for my daughter and we're you know looking at various private schools mm-hmm. here in L.A. And I remember one of the few – Reasons why I loved Princeton was the lightweight football team because I played football in high school. I, I've always loved playing football. I played tackle football when I was in fourth grade, and I thought that's going to be how I identify myself on, on campus is I'm a football player. It's how I've always – I was a jock in high school. And there I am, freshman year, playing lightweight football, a little fish in a big pond yeah. now. Uh Scott Farmer is a much better linebacker than oh, I Scott am. Scott Farmer, yeah. And he stuck around the team longer than he, we did, too. Well, yeah, because <laughs> when you're good at something, they keep you. And when you're not, it's not as exciting to be there. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better freshman year performance by our team. And maybe if we'd been worse, I would have played more. Right. But I remember beating Army in the Anthracite right. Bowl. 
I remember losing to Penn and Tranchina taking his helmet as we start. Like Rob Kellner made somebody mm-hmm. laugh, and uh, we were laughing a little bit after having lost. And Tranchina took his helmet, whipped it across the locker room. It dented a locker, and then he said, "Screw a team that takes losing lightly." Oh yeah, and we all just froze. And I, that guy was just such a great leader and he such was a great the reason football we won. player. Yeah. Yeah, he was an inspiration to all of us, and, and he was so good. And they had to cancel the, the program after we left. Right. Is it canceled now? <laughs> yeah, it's canceled. Because, I mean, even in the last few years, I've gotten emails. We ra- we've raised money, and there's... You've helped? Yeah. I went to, actually, I met Trans- Tranchina at a uh, function they had in New York City a couple of years ago. Oh, my God. He's bald, but he's still the same. Is he running, like, guy. steakhouses in Staten Island? <laughs> no. What does he do? Oh, I forget. I, I thought I that's what he was going to do. He's like a family went into no. restaurants, a chain. I mean, he was well, an engineer, he did, but... He, he, ne- Trench, if you're listening, you should open up a steakhouse in Staten Island. It's your exactly, exactly. But it's funny because we both, both of us kind of ended up at this hallowed institution playing this random, obscure sport. And we it propelled us into these different avenues that we probably didn't imagine. Right. Like, I'm... I ended up being a journalist. You're an actor. Although, although when we first arrived on campus, one of the most often questions there ever was was uh, from other people was, did you know Brooke Shields? Right. So even though everybody went into Wall Street or banking or politics, people want to know about Brooke Shields. So acting was not that obscure of a choice, was it? No, I mean, we have some famous alums mm-hmm. from Brooke Shields to Dean Cain yeah. to David E. Kelly to even now Alex Ganza, who created Homeland. Okay. David Duchovny. Uh, David Duchovny. I mean, there's always been a sort of glitterati of Princetonians, um, but to go into Princeton thinking I would be in the Woodrow Wilson School of International Relations thinking I would be a football player and a member of the Zeta Psi fraternity, mm. which many of our yeah, our Psi. colleagues on the football team were, and then to just completely do a 180 and become a thespian and do 15 plays at school over the course of those four years, quit the football team, quit uh, being a pledge at Zeta Psi, yeah. and... Uh, Follow this path, which I have followed uh, into you know realms that my parents loved from afar, but never would have thought to be a part of. And now suddenly they are the subject of a TV show I'm doing, <laughs> right? So it's very surreal. It all comes around. Uh, yeah, it did. Nine JKL exactly. Um, but at the time, freshman to sophomore, did it feel like a hard left turn um, that you were making, or did it seem like? It, the natural progression it of your It did feel like a hard left turn. I mean, there I was doing this play Orphans at Theater on Team and hanging right. with guys like Josh Klausner and Eugene Jarecki who were so interesting and cool. And I'd always, you know, I'd always been a fan of literature and poetry. It had always been in my system, but Funny enough, I was better at math and the sciences as a student in high school. So was I. I I was not as great with (laughs) thematics and story Mm -hmm. and analyzing a poem, but I loved that more. And so I, I mean, I guess I have to give myself some props for going into something unlike 
uh, you know, football, which I quit because eventually I was not good enough to play. I stayed with something where I may not have been the best English student in my precept classes at Princeton. I remember Dave Brudel was so smart when we were discussing the canon of British literature. He was one of a few twins we had. Yeah, Dave and Pete Brudel. Terrific guy and such a great mind. And I remember being in Natasha Rosenvelt's uh, precept class for uh, some lecture course, like maybe basic English 201. Mm Mm-hmm. And Dave was just so interesting and dark. He was like Christian Slater in Heathers. He <laughs> he so understood okay. the literature we were discussing, and and I always felt a little bit of a step behind. But um, maybe it was being able to take stuff off the page and put it into action on the st- on the stage that uh, made all of that feel more palpable for me and more immediate and more discernible so that suddenly the stuff I loved of poetry and play plays and and literature became more authentic did you know with that first play orphans that you were going to take the leap of a lifetime or did it take another couple of productions I didn't know and you know when you look back on your life and you see kind of the randomness of the decisions you make and then you think about how they couldn't have been any other decision. You, you're just amazed by this, this process that we call life. I mean, I, how did I get to Princeton? I liked the people who went to Princeton from my high school. Uh, I, I liked that they had a football team. And I, didn't, I felt that at Harvard I would be nervous and pressured and so I didn't go for it even though the wrestling coach at the Harvard said maybe I could get you in I didn't want to owe him four years of my life to wrestle which bears no fruit in life whatsoever (laughs) so there I was at Princeton and thinking I'd be a lawyer and building a good resume and then I just auditioned for a play and then I'm hanging with these guys like Eugene and Josh and doing uh, King uh, uh, Henry the Fourth in the chapel at Princeton with our friend Raul Babnani and and, uh, and not Ryan McDonough but Jeff Glass mm-hmm. and then I'm at a program in Oxford studying acting after my sophomore year and it's becoming more and more serious and I'm directing uh, Chekhov at the student theater my junior year and writing a junior paper on that. And then senior year, I'm playing Stanley Kowalski, and I'm thinking about going to drama school, and, I'm, and Michael Cadden tells me to apply for a Fulbright, and I get one. And so because I didn't get into Yale or NYU or ART, I'm going to London <laughs> for free on the government for a year to study at Lambda, and suddenly I'm doing this. Right. And it's those moments that all like a constellation just come together, and that's your life. But no, there was no moment where freshman year I go, oh, I really like like smoking a cigarette on stage and, and, tell, and telling this story about brothers and a surrogate father figure, orphans, um, and talking in this dead-end kid accent and, and crying on stage at the end because we lost our father and never really had one. But I was touched by that in some deep way, and I stayed with it. Now, I remember that you had gotten serious into acting before graduation, but I didn't remember until I went back and looked that you were 
in a pretty big production off campus at McCarter while still a I, student. Yeah, that was a that was a really lucky thing. And How it did was, you get? It was only because um, the program of theater and dance at 185 Nassau mm-hmm. had made an alliance with Emily Mann at the McCarter, and some sign-up sheets went up on the wall to be an intern at the McCarter for their production of Three Sisters over Christmas break. And McCarter is a well-known... It's a great regional theater. Regional theater, In, the, yeah. in Princeton. And... Uh, I didn't think anything of missing my Christmas vacation because my parents didn't have plans to go away. We weren't doing anything special. And you're from New York City. I'm so from it's New not York like... City. It's an hour and a half away. Right. So screw it. I'll give them my Christmas vacation. And I saw that the cast was insane. I mean, they had uh, – and I'm going to walk you through these parts even though you may not know or care. About Three Sisters? Of Three Sisters, <laughs> but – um, playing Natasha was Laura San Giacomo. Playing Masha was Francis McDormand. Playing Olga was Linda Hunt. Playing Irina was Mary Stuart Masterson. Playing uh, Chibutikin, the old uh, guy, was Joseph Summer. Playing uh, Andre was Paul McCrane from uh, Fame and from ER. Mm. Uh, Mark Nelson, a great New York theater actor, was playing Baron von Tusenbach. Uh, they had Edward Herman, who was a great actor, um, and I'm wondering if I, it's a, yeah, no, so those, those were amazing actors, and to get to watch Francis McDormand every day, uh, and then ten times in a row, in one rehearsal, break down sobbing when uh, the, the Colonel Vershinin is leaving for war, and her, you know, she's fallen in love with him, and they've had this affair, and she's beside herself because her life is no longer going to have meaning without him there and you know the Russians and meaning and life and existence and uh, then they, then Emily Mann threw me a bone and I played Skvortsov uh, a part that um, no one's ever heard of because <laughs> they barely refer to him when uh, his name is Peter Francis James played Solioni another amazing New York theater actor and, he, and, and uh, you see the soldiers going off to the duel between Solioni and uh, I believe it's Tusenbach, who he kills, and uh, a soldier walks across the stage and goes Nazdrovia. <laughs> that was me. That was Skvortsov. <laughs> and the only way you know it is Solioni goes, Ah, yes, that's Skvortsov in the boat. <laughs> and that's how we knew my you're, character's you're, name. So obviously, this was very important you're, because your recall is. <laughs> Thank you. Well, is, it's a great play that I already studied very hard in my program at Oxford. Mm -hmm. Um, But to get to do that, like the timing of that was so uncanny that I had just been exposed to Chekhov that summer before had been, had just directed the cherry orchard. And then I get to watch these pros do three sisters. It was like, you know, crack for a theater geek, which I became at that time. So coming off the Fulbright, did you have that, uh, eternal debate that goes on with an actor about whether to go New York City or Hollywood? Um, not really. I didn't think of L.A. I had no awareness of L.A. when I graduated from Princeton. I went to London, mm-hmm. studied for a year, uh, had the most amazing year studying with voice teachers and movement teachers and then studying clowning with this French clown teacher in London who was incredible. 
Have you watched any of Baskets on FX? I watched a little of it. <laughs> I I want to get into it more than I am. Right. But uh, for the I, clowning. Yeah, no, I know for the clowning. I this clown teacher I had was so much funnier to me than that show. He was so brilliant. Anyway, okay. I came back to New York and I came back to New York and I just wanted to work in, in the theater. I mean, the funny thing about becoming an actor is you're so addicted to the rush of performance and storytelling. You don't think, I, I need to be George Clooney or Matt Damon tomorrow. You think, I just want to be in this business, especially if you're someone like me who's has no in, has never been a part of a family that did anything related to the entertainment industry. Like, we knew some crappy producers mm-hmm. as family friends. So all I wanted was to work in the theater, to play character roles, uh, third wheel, fifth wheel, seventh wheel. But to have to, that live audience, though. Just to be on stage and tell great stories and be part of – and I got to do that at first. I got to be a really crappy part in a production of Macbeth at uh, the Classic Stage Company where I was rolling around the floor. Uh, I was a, a, a whor- dark horse of the apocalypse, a role that even Shakespeare did not think of okay. and was added to the play. And then I, was, I got a pl- part as a scribe in a regional production of a Dybbuk by Tony Kushner, who had, he had adapted it. And I was playing the scribe, and I was yelling out my Haftorah portion from my bar mitzvah as lines in the play – because I was possessed, just going, I'm like rolling across the floor because I'm possessed. But they were lines the from your actual apartment. Yes, they were. <laughs> uh, and so that was New York. And that was, I was just work doing whatever I could. Mm-hmm. And, and then I got, I got an audition. Oh, I went to do a play in San Francisco. Okay. At the American Conservatory Theater with Carrie Perloff, who's a wonderful director, and she runs that theater. And I was driving down to L.A. every Monday, which is our day off, and meeting whoever would meet with me. Every Monday, it was just like, can you set me up with anybody? And I had an agent, which was very lucky and fortunate that I only got because my father called his allergist's niece, Joy Weber, a casting director of... Wendy's commercials and said, oh, I got Alec Baldwin's voice in my office. Uh, You should do voiceovers. And she sent me to two voiceover agents, Mm -hmm. and I parlayed one of them into legitimate representation for film theater. Was it with that voice? Uh, (laughs) The allergies? This this was the voiceover I did uh, maybe 20 years ago. Miller Genuine Draft. For those who discovered its smooth draft taste, the world's a very cool place. Don't you just want a nice beer right now? Makes me, makes me sad I quit drinking. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but You and me both, buddy. <laughs> um, so, okay, so you're going down to L.A. on the dark Mondays. On the dark days, I'm going down to L.A., and I met uh, producers of a sitcom called Fired Up. Uh, it was with wait. Sharon Lawrence and Leah Remini. We lived in a clock tower. Wait, when was it, Caroline in the City? Was that, that Well, was, that was the first thing that was actually on TV, yeah. but I got fired up first. Oh, and okay. Jimmy, Jimmy Burroughs, who's a legend of yeah. TV directing, he, uh, he directed me in 
fired up, and then mm-hmm. he brought me over to Caroline in the City to play her new young boyfriend. Right. I mean, that was a time where Jimmy could just like offer me that role, and uh, so suddenly I had a recurring gig on Caroline, a show that's already on TV, right? Network prime time, and then I'm in in training for my show where I'm a regular, right? Coming up mid season that year in February. It was a pretty great. So, so was the part on Caroline? Was that Jimmy's idea to like get audiences familiar with you, so that way when Fired Up started, be like, oh yeah, that guy. That guy's in the show. I don't even know if he was thinking that far ahead. I think they just needed a good boyfriend for Caroline, mm. and I was the guy. And what's How many weird times is, had you watched Back to the Future? <laughs> right. <laughs> Leah Thompson. Yeah. I just saw her. Um, and her daughter's in the business, too. Now. Yeah. Both of them. She has two girls. One mm-hmm. of them is the star of that most recent film. Was it a Judd Apatow movie? Yeah. Uh, that was somebody else's daughter. I've, anyhow, Deutsch. Her name is Deutsch because yeah, okay. because Leah's married to Howie yeah. Deutsch. But uh, her other her other daughter apparently is a talented writer. I saw her at the opening of a new show at the Amundsen Theater called Bright Star, Steve oh. Martin's uh, musical with Edie oh, nice. Brickell, and it was so nice to see her. And uh, you know, it's crazy that I'm doing a sitcom now because I did Caroline in the City, Fired Up. I did Conrad Bloom with the creator of Ca- oh, yeah. of Caroline, Marco Panette. And then Good Morning Miami. And then Good Morning Miami was year, a few years later, mm-hmm. but somewhere in the middle of my career, uh, with the creators of Will and Grace, who are now having a lovely success <laughs> with the revival of Will and Grace. Of Will and, Grace. And, uh, and here I am again. And I, you know, the sitcom is such a mysterious beast. I mean, it, you would not think in watching a sitcom that it was nearly as hard as it is to make one. You'd think uh, the cooler mm-hmm. single camera shows on Netflix, um, even on network television, mm-hmm. are more uh, difficult and challenging than a freaking sitcom, which looks just so kind of bare bones and simple By on the TV. Numbers. But because of the rewriting process, it is more challenging than any other format, certainly for writers. Actors have a pretty cushy life. Well, you're a multicam, too, so you're in front of an audience. It's, it's not just the, the pressure of being in front of an audience, but to have to be funny every other line or every two lines, there's no room for like, oh, it's just interesting because we get to know Sean McCarthy mm-hmm. right here. We just... I want to know about why he chose that outfit and who he is and how he got here. We don't have time for that. I need to, we need to make the audience laugh right, right now. About, <laughs> about Mark's inability to have a one-night stand. Yes, exactly. How do we turn that into a how do we, recurring how do we laugh line on for that? 22 minutes? Yeah. So it's, and my wife is running the show, and, and I'm helping her uh, by you know being involved in every other aspect from editing to – the cast, uh, we do it together, and it's pretty amazing that we get to do this, but it's challenging. I mean, I was, I'm sorry, I'm yawning. I was up at five in the morning <laughs> doing radio interviews across you know the country to promote our show. It's just, it never ends. You got to keep pushing until- Right, because this is the one week that you're not taping, so you- This is our hiatus week. So we're supposed to be relaxing in this week, but it's not a relaxed at all because we're about to dive back into production on Wednesday- and we have to have a script for Wednesday's table read, 
And then we have to have a script for the next week, which is still in the making. Mm-hmm. And then we have to have a script after that. And that's the three last scripts we have until CBS officially picks us up for more. For the back nine. They've picked us up for three scripts to say, we like where you're at and we think we're going to make more of you, but we don't know for sure. That's got to be a much different feeling than your last show royal pains where it is it's very different. where you're on usa and they're just like yeah let's do it let's yes. keep going that's correct that's what it was like on usa <laughs> we were one of their staples for so long uh i mean there were moments where we didn't know we'd come back we didn't know we'd get picked up for seasons five and six so there was a lot of sturm and drung and campaigning <laughs> and figuring it out and selling that we could balance the budget and make it cheaper and then we got picked up for five and six and then we had to do even more of that uh like budget maintenance analysis for seasons seven and eight but we were just reliable enough for the network that we got eight seasons out of it and that's a miracle i mean that's the holy grail and it was heaven to make that show i mean they're all like my brothers in arms the the actors uh and sisters the crew, the writers, the cast. I loved everybody. And that's when you were living in the building with your... That's when I was living in apartment 9K, and my parents were in 9J, and my brother was in 9L with his wife and baby. And after sharing with enough people that I'm living the life of a sitcom, we decided to make one about it. Now, having been through the gauntlet of sitcoms in the mid-late 90s, does that make it any easier for you to deal with this uncertainty right now about um, where about where it's going to go? Right, because uh, you've been through it before. You like you know, you know what makes it a little easier to be honest is how hard it is. It's it's really rewarding to create a show and see it on the air. And I mentioned I went to that show. I took my daughter to see this. Steve Martin show Bright Star on Thursday night and all these people come up to me and say we love 9JKL we're we're loving it we're loving it we can't wait to see the next one and to know that I was part of creating that to know that it's loosely based on my family and to get that approval and validation is very rewarding Um, and the idea that we could have created something that will be a part of the canon of TV history is Amazing and could be a dream. But the rigor of creating by committee and marshalling all the forces that have to come together from post-production to the writer's room to our producers who have a lot of say in what we do, it's grueling. And so, you know, there's a little part of both my wife, my wife even more so, but me too, of like, well, if it all came to a screeching halt, I'd be okay. I'd figure out my next move. This would be a definitely I'd be in TV prison for at least a couple of years or a year or something, and we'd figure out the next move. But to have built this for the 100 people who are on our crew, for our writers, our executives, our cast, I would love this thing to go because it's a great family. It really is a good show. I believe in it. I believe the bones are there for many, many great stories in the years to come. 
And because it's so uh, believable and authentic and grounded in my real life stuff and my wife's real life stuff, there's a lot of stories to tell. And I hope we get to tell them. But, you know, you just never know. Right. But obviously, like you're just saying, you have a different emotional attachment because it is your show. Yes. You're not just a recurring – you're not a main character, recurring, or a star of the show. It's your show. And yeah. It's based and, on your life. And just to get the back nine episodes picked up or to get a season two, I mean, just to know that – it's like Rocky, you know, to know that you got – that you went the distance. And to me, this has been like this crazy experiment, me and my wife – took on and we've jumped through every hoop i mean there are so many hoops you have to pitch the show to network executives then you have to when you sell it you have to write the script and then you have to get that script picked up to be made then you cast it and you make a show which is already through the eye of a needle Right, and Pil- then the whole pilot season is. A- it's insane, and then you get picked up to be put on the air, the Holy Grail, and then you maybe get as much promotion as you want, or in most cases, a little less than you want, depending on the time slot they give you. Depending on the time slot, which is a great time slot, but it's a blessing and a curse to be after Big Bang Theory. It's amazing because we get so many viewers, but it's also like we drop, you know, fifty five percent. We keep fifty five percent of their mm-hmm. audience. And so that that can be hard. Um, but I, I've looked at every hoop like, you know what? This is this crazy experiment. So let's see if we get through the next one. Let's just see. Take a wait and see attitude. And the universe will decide what's meant to be. Who, and, and we just – yeah, sorry. Uh, who, is, uh, who has been kind of the best in terms of keeping you on the beam through this whole process? Your wife, or has it been outside people who have been through it before and are like, Mark, here's what you need to know. Here's what you need to keep in mind. Who, I, like, who keeps you steady through this? It's, it's honestly hard. There's not any – Dana, my wife, who's amazing, doesn't really have the bandwidth to worry about my equilibrium. <laughs> I worry a little more about hers mm-hmm. because – She's working so freaking hard. And she's here till 2 in the morning. I'm here till sometimes uh, 8, sometimes uh, 2 in the morning. But she's always here till 2 in the morning if, if that's how late the writer's room is going. Maybe 12.30 or mm-hmm. 1. But I can go home and put the kids to bed on a Wednesday and a Thursday. And maybe I'll stay late on a Friday. She's here late every Wednesday, Thursday, Friday night. And then we shoot Monday, Tuesday. So I'm actually this as you mentioned this is our one hiatus week. So tonight I'm going to my therapist for the first time <laughs> in like months and oh, months. Wow. Uh who by the way wasn't able to text me when the show premiered. So I'm about to give her a big lump of shit <laughs> when I see her. So this is the pre-therapy session right now. Yes, like, I'm like I'm getting some of it off my chest now. <laughs> Uh, that should be a little awkward, but she needs to hear it. You know, before I let you go, I wanted to make sure that I asked you about um, Lazy Monday. Oh, my God. <laughs> Dude, you made my day just by bringing it up. <laughs> because I I was still a newspaper reporter at the time, and I remember Lazy Sunday, the Saturday Night Live short video that blew up. And then the next day, I saw see this video 
and it's got Mark Feuerstein in it yep. <laughs> doing a rap response video. And I'm like, what is this? Mark raps? What is going on? I don't think – had there been response videos? You know, it's so funny you said that. There had not been. Yeah. We were the first – we were in Shots Almanac, an almanac – I don't know if you follow almanacs – it's not even – I don't even know if it's the best almanac. Compared to the farmers? Right. Uh, yeah, maybe they're like living in the shadow of farmer's almanac. But mm. in Schatz Almanac, mm-hmm. we were listed as the first ever responsive video. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I I loved making that so much with my friends Adam Stein and Sam Friedlander. Uh, yo, Samberg. Yo, Chris Parnell. You think you both so bad because you want SNL. Now that Narnia is done, we like to boast how we spend a lazy day out on the West Coast. Yo, Stein. <laughs> what's up for you, Steen? Let's rock an ice blended at the coffee bean. Uh, 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 uh. <laughs> I mean, I remember being in my buddy Sam's house on, in Santa Monica when we were just laying that shit down. But how and why did that come together in the first place? Because... Uh, we all loved the Chronicles of Narnia, you know, mm-hmm. uh, Lazy Sunday mm-hmm. video. We thought it was amazing. We all love rap and hip hop. I've always fancied myself like having more soul than I actually do. And uh, we thought, how funny would it be if, like, they're on the East Coast, um, we had our own West Coast rap battle back to the East Coast guys. Right. And. So we wrote it, and we just started writing and writing and writing, and then we laid it down in Sam's closet, which we used for as a sound booth. Okay. And then we shot it all over Santa Monica. What did you use to shoot? Um, what was the technology back then? I think it was like a Panasonic, whatever is the prosumer level mm-hmm. uh, camera. I mean, it wasn't very big. It wasn't like an Alexa or something like that. It was just, you know, the kind you, you could get at B&H Video for probably a thousand bucks. External mics or no? Yep, external. Well, we didn't really need mics because we pre-recorded the okay. song. So you were just lip-syncing like a music video. Exactly. Exactly. But we shot it, you know, on the beach, mm-hmm. under the boardwalk in Santa Monica. We got those bikes and we were we rented a buddy's bikes and rode them, you know, in, in a serpentine way. Back and forth. And I remember, thanks to my manager, I sent it directly to SNL, and we never heard back. But I've had a moment with Andy Samberg at an airport where I mm-hmm. told him, hey, man, I just wanted you to know we made like a response to your thing. And he's like, oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't think he really was at all aware of it. But but there were like so many responses afterwards. There was, uh, there was like uh, guys in Cambridge wrote about... T, motherfucker, T. They rapped about T. And then there were, um, there was soldiers on a tank in Ramadi called Lazy Ramadi. And they did a whole rap from a tank, it, it, you know, in the Persian Gulf. So uh, it had a cool, you know, r- response. Yeah. It was mostly all of us on the coattails of Andy Samberg and right. Chris Parnell. But it was great, and I love that you brought it up. And and just sorry to talk longer about something that could have been a much shorter answer, <laughs> which is my way, as you can tell. I I, I do want to say that like things like Lazy Monday are those passion projects. I mean, I know it's not like we're talking about uh, saving children or mm-hmm. world hunger. We're talking about a stupid rap video, but those are the things that I love that I you know got into the business to make in terms of 
having fun performing and creating where I get to be creative myself and I don't have to rely on the powers that be to tell me what to make. And, uh, you know, we made webisodes after that, me and my buddies, Sam and Adam. Uh, we made something called The Hustler, which was like 13 webisodes on Crackle years ago. Oh, wow. Okay. And then um, we pitched TV shows as a group that didn't really go anywhere. Uh, but But the stuff I've done with them has been some of the most rewarding. And when I decided to start directing, I directed a video. Oh, The Hustler was based on a video called Pinata Hustler about a a girl's nine-year-old birthday party and a guy comes on a motorcycle and crashes it and destroys the pinata and steals all the candy. Oh, man. And I play that guy and and that was The Hustler. Um, But I try to never lose sight of the fun of creation, even if you're not doing it for a network like USA or CBS, just to go make something with your buddies because you can now with the cameras they have is so rewarding. Uh, recently on this show, we tried to make some webisodes. Okay. But because we're on CBS and they're so tight about what you can put out on the web. Especially since now they have CBS All Access. And- yeah. I mean, they were just not that into our webisodes. They were probably just not that funny, which is what our executive producers would say. But uh, it was a little bit of a bummer for me because I I get so into making that sort of thing. Um, But you have to figure out where your your creative impulses are being received. And if they're not, then you just do it where they are. You have to go where, you know, people want what you have to offer – and um, never disparage that. It's just about the way the universe is guiding you. So whether it's making webisodes or making a network primetime sitcom, is it is it more important, more rewarding just to be able to make it? Or do you still kind of get end up getting wrapped up in whether it's number of views or Nielsen ratings or the YouTube comments or... Um. Is it the is it the making the product or where's where's the validation? Right, there's um, a few different levels to that question. It's such a great question you're asking, Sean, because it's been I wanna, so elusive for me personally. Well, I want to make sure since you haven't talked to your therapist that we get this out. Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate it. Um, you know, when you do a network sitcom, ratings are all that matter to the powers that be. Are they all that matter to me? No. I love the moments I share with Linda Lavin on and off screen, the moments I share with Elliot Gould on and off screen, David Walton, the moments I am having with my wife when we're writing, when we're stressed out, when we have a great scene that worked, when we didn't think it would for the whole week of production, you know, Um, those are great moments Uh, when it's, when I was on Royal Pains getting to make rap videos to promote the show, which never would have happened if I hadn't done Lazy Monday and gotten my first taste of that, that was so fun. Uh, sometimes it was annoying to our showrunners because it was like, why are you taking time from production to make your stupid rap video? <laughs> well, I'm trying to help you know promote the show, but I also love it. <laughs> and so you're going to indulge me because I'm the star of the show and I need five <laughs> minutes to get my shot. And then they did. Um but I also loved the work we got to do on Royal Pains, even though I hadn't written any of that. I loved the guys who did write it, and I loved every one of our writers. And TV is a collaborative medium, so 
you know, you find great satisfaction in stuff that relates to your own ego and stuff that relates to the collaborative process. And my clown teacher had a great saying, which was, you use the word complicité, which is the sharing between two actors. Uh, you are in major and I am in minor. And then I throw you the ball. You throw me the ball and I am in major. And I'm so happy to have the ball. And now I pass it to you. And navigating the the challenges of the ego with the joy of creation is pretty much an everyday battle. Mm-hmm. But it's a worthy one. And... Uh, I I'd have to say I've been winning it privately, but not without a lot of awareness and mindfulness along the road. Well, Mark, it's uh, it's great catching up with you. You too, man. This was so much fun. I'm yeah. so glad we got to make this happen. <laughs> Me too. Thanks, Mark. All right, man. This episode of the Comics Comic Presents Last Things First was produced by Alex Brazell at Showbiz Studios. The music by Camille Harris and Shockwave, logo by Gigglechick. Please check out my website, thecomicscomic.com, for more interviews, reviews, and comedy news. Become a paid subscriber at patreon.com. I'm your host, Sean O. McCarthy. Thanks for listening. Thanks first.